This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where you're going to want to subscribe. Anybody listening out there is going to want to subscribe to Zupan's uh, news feed to find out about their farm-to-market beer. Yeah, this is pretty great. They've been doing this for years now. Uh, the newest collaboration, farm-to-market Mega Mammoth Imperial IPA from Laurelwood Brewing Company. And you can pick that up at your local Zupan's. Yeah, so Zupan's very local, um, very organic, and... And uh, that's good to find, as well as, speaking of local, the Copper River Salmon is now in uh, from the pure and pristine waters of Alaska's Copper River. You're going to find the best in salmon, whether it's king, sockeye, anything at Zupan's. And, uh, of course, other things going on sale right now. Save on prime rib steaks, California stone fruit, uh, fresh mozzarella, and a whole lot more at your local Zupan's. Also, we've talked about this in times past. I, I need to mention this again. They always have a sausage of the month Chris. And right now it's the curry chicken. My family and I, uh, just a few weeks ago, went to Zupan's, picked out a variety of different sausages from the the, uh, the meat counter there, uh, including what it, uh, at the time was this the sausage of the month. And it was just a, a great feast at the house uh, because of our local Zupan's. And they've always got great deals on, on the sausages. So be sure to check that out when you stop by your local Zupan's. I love the meat department at Zupan's. All the departments, but that meat department is awesome. Can't be beat. Three locations to serve you, including McAdam, West Burnside, Lake Oswego. And you can get all this information and sign up for that news feed. Where, Chris? Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It is Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm Court Johnson. In fact, this is a Chris Angelus-less edition of the podcast as uh, Chris still makes his way through Europe. He's doing those great Portland food adventures, I believe, right now. He is in Spain with the good folks over at Urdaneta, uh, something that you can participate in. If you'd like to know more about Chris's adventures outside of Portland, portlandfoodadventures.com is the website you click on trips and uh, if you've been following along you know he's been doing all sorts of things uh, not only here in Portland but uh, he's been doing some great uh, river rafting trips and then these European trips which I think he's going on nearly four maybe five years of doing these maybe even more than that Anyway, as mentioned, I'm Court Johnson soloing it this time around and uh, pretty excited about this uh, week's edition of the podcast. Had a really great conversation with Dirk Marshall of uh, Marshall's Hot Sauce and the VHS podcast. In fact, that is the biggest reason why I wanted to bring him on. If you follow Dirk on uh, on social media, uh, VH us podcast is what you should search for um you'll know that he's been doing this really great quote film adjacent podcast for the last couple of years during the pandemic where he basically brings somebody on as a guest that has the profession of something shown in a movie does that make sense Did I describe that properly so for example we actually talk about 
Santa Clauses, professional Santa Clauses. So what he did is uh, had to find a Santa Claus that would be willing to come on the uh, show with him. And they talk about a movie that involves a Santa Claus. And in fact, he had some uh, some difficulty in that area. I'll let Dirk explain all of that. But a really great concept that he came up with a few years ago. And in this podcast, we talk about uh, kind of the origins of Dirk's fascination with uh, not just, you know, blockbuster movies, but really and probably primarily um, these obscure um, I don't want to say bizarre but obscure hard to find uh, videos that uh, not only are you know released here in the United States but uh, you know he really gets into some international stuff so really great conversation hopefully if you're a fan of of film and or uh, television in general we kind of get into you know the difficulties of finding certain things why some things have never been released and uh, I really enjoyed my time with Dirk. And then, of course, because we can't uh, not talk about Marshall's hot sauce, uh, we uh, talk a little bit about what he and his wife, Sarah, have been up to. Uh, very busy people in the Portland community. Um, I think that's why we all uh, love them so much, just because of, of the way they give back and, and the way they uh, um, contribute to the greater good of Portland. So uh, at the very end, we, we talk about uh, Marshall's hot sauce what they've been up to, some of their uh, smaller projects, with the promise that uh, in the near future we'll actually have both Dirk and Sarah back on the podcast to talk about uh, various things. But uh, they're doing so many good things. Um, I really enjoyed, uh, again, having Dirk on the podcast live from his very own podcast studio. It's really great. Um, I've been doing podcasting for over a decade, and I'm set up for the last little while in my uh, 17-year-old daughter's bedroom. And Dirk has this really, really awesome-looking podcast dedicated studio for himself. So I think I'm doing this wrong, Dirk. That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, so I hope you enjoy this edition of Right at the Fork as we, again, it's he is film adjacent. Today we are Portland food scene adjacent because these people, uh, talking about Dirk and Sarah Marshall, very much in the heart of the Portland food food scene, but wanted to highlight something other something other than that, something that Dirk is doing, which is his podcast. So I've rambled enough. VH Us is the podcast. I'll put links to his website in the show notes so you can uh, go and check it out. But listen to this. It's right at the fork with Dirk Marshall. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years now, Ringside has been providing the best in steaks and has been the home for the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Now featuring dining in their updated dining room and al fresco in one of the nicest outdoor dining spaces in the city. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com and while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about the exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. Featuring the best chef-centric experiences in Portland since 2010. 
Go to PortlandFoodAdventures.com to see about the exciting trips our host Chris Angelus leads to places you have dreamed of going, like Western Sicily this September. It's time to stretch your international wings and expand your culinary horizons. Let Portland Food Adventures do all the planning to the best dining and culture all over Europe and elsewhere with Portlanders you'll get to know and enjoy. PortlandFoodAdventures.com So I, this is probably a dumb question, Dirk, um, and and Chris pointed this out to me because I think I've always said it just because of the way it's spelled. Is it Marshall's hot sauce or is it hot sauce? Uh, you know, how should I say, be saying it? Well, most people just say hot sauce. Yeah. We say hot sauce, but no one, no one really does. Yeah. Okay. I mean, family members, everybody just they just go with. Nobody's French here. So. And, 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 sure, and and it's not one of those things where you're gonna you're gonna correct anybody. Nah, right. No. No. Yeah. Never. Okay. So I'm fine either way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's good to know. And uh, we will we will get into what uh, Marshall's hot sauce or hot sauce has been um, been up to uh, since we last spoke. You were one of the, you and your wife Sarah were one of the first guests I think we had early on in the podcast. So um, a lot of time has passed, I believe. Um, Gosh, yeah, I don't even know what year that was. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have to take a quick second here and look it up when we talk about it. But uh, really, what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, is something that uh, I don't know when you started this and you can tell me is you are now a, a, a podcast. You've got a very cool podcast called VHS, yeah. uh, which is a, uh, I, I saw this, I can't remember where I saw you wrote it down. It's a, it's a film adjacent podcast. Is that, yeah. is that the, but describe to people who are not familiar with VHS, what is the podcast all about? Yeah. So, um, well, basically I grew up in a video store and I didn't think that was unique. You know, you always think you're, your childhood is is the same for everybody. And then, you know, I was like probably 40. My friend gave me a book of VHS cover art and I felt like I'd returned home. And it just caused me to look back on my life and realize that really I've used movies to relate to people my, my entire existence. And so I wanted to take films and celebrate them, but not just talk about it from a place of fandom. I wanted to like um, find a different way to use film. And so I have guests on that have a specific profession that's portrayed in the film. And then we talk about the movie, not if it's like accurate to their life, because obviously they're films, but like, um, about their individual experiences, because I think we all have these interesting jobs and lives, but they're boring to us because it's our job in life. And so this way we can celebrate people and movies at the same time. It, it's an interesting concept because, and, and I'm sure you probably get into this because um, you could uh, hyperanalyze a portrayal of a certain uh, mm-hmm. job or industry. Uh, me coming out of broadcasting, whenever there's like somebody in the radio world and they show this depiction and the equipment isn't right, yeah. or they're not wearing headphones yet they're mm-hmm. live on the air, and it's just like, it just drives me nuts. Like even even me watching WKRP, which is actually fairly accurate in a lot of ways. The guys guy who created. WKRP did radio. So there's a lot of it that's accurate, but they have to make some choices sometimes on the technical side in a movie that, you know, it just, the don't put headphones on the actor because it's just the lighting's not going to be right. And it's such a brief right. moment, but it's like you wear headphones when you're in a broadcast studio. That's important. Um, so I'm sure those are some of the things you get into in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm really, I'm kind of doing something very different with it because I'm using the structure of the movie to then segue into aspects of people's lives. So sometimes something in the movie will trigger something like I had um, uh, 
Dina Melhaf, who is a news pot—I mean, yeah, news reporter—and mm-hmm. so we talked about a movie called Switching Channels, and there was definitely things that you know triggers somebody where they're just like you said with the headphones, and then they go in that direction, and then you know I have a structure and a time frame. I'm, I'm not doing four-hour episodes; I try to keep it at an hour, and uh, so then I have to get us from that point back into the movie or back into a different aspect of their life. So it's a very fun kind of uh, dance we do. Yeah, again, I, th- I think it's a very unique uh, approach um, to, to talking about film. And you had, you had mentioned you grew up in a, a video store. Mm-hmm. Um, how long was, was this your entire childhood or was it just a portion of your childhood growing up? Um, well, basically it started out with like, vcr rentals camcorders and then at the birth of like the vhs market my father was kind of like getting into that and then realized rather than like distributing he could just have a store so he opened a store um i mean i was pretty young uh and then that existed until late 90s um basically he got up to having three stores at one point which was pretty fun but there was one store that i grew up in and uh it was right next to a place called putt and video which had miniature golf and arcade games Mm -hmm. so i had this very um stranger things existence of like hanging out in the video store looking at all the vhs cover art and then he'd get you know need a break so he'd give me a dollar so i'd go next door and and wander the uh the arcade and by Laffy Taffy and Jerky and just hang out. So it was, a, it was a pretty unique situation. But it caused me to, I mean, it changed how I view media my whole life. Like I I went from just digging around the shelves of the v, VHS store um, to then when I got into music, same thing. I was a crate digger. I went and dug through records looking for whatever and then take that producer, that um, guitarist, and then go look at these other things that they've done and from label to label. And that's how I continually... Uh, continue to exist and you know I'll get into sharks and then I'm like down deep down into like weird Turkish spinoffs of Jaws and it's just uh, it's just what drives me I guess where uh, where did you grow up what uh, was it here in the uh, Pacific this, Northwest yep Springfield Springfield Eugene area of Oregon okay. Okay, yeah so, so he had two stores in Springfield and then one store in uh, uh, Eugene so it sounds as if your dad got started with the the video rental, you know, before the the chains came in, even the blockbusters and the oh, Hollywood video, like the, yeah, the this original was like, video stores. Yeah, when you would see like a rack of VHS just pop up in a grocery store, or you go into a gas station and they'd have like twenty tapes or something. Like it was very, it was a very cool time because there wasn't a format and there wasn't like even how vhs ended up in stores it was just random catalogs and promo tapes and people just really wheeling and dealing and trying to like get stuff out there there was just no structure to to the um distribution yet people were scrambling and trying to figure it out but um it was nothing like when the chains came in and you would go into one store and they would have basically the same catalog as the next store right um and that was the best thing about the mom and pop shops was it was just random what they had. Like my dad's store didn't have killer clowns from outer space. And I wanted to see killer clowns from outer space so badly that I had to go to another store to rent it, um, which was fine. We, we supported all kinds of different stores, but um, it was interesting to see how a catalog worked back then. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, kind, kind of on that same point where, you know, these chains kind of made things uniformed and, fairly generic i i have memories of you know my my small town growing up had two independent video stores before the blockbuster came in and ultimately put them out of business 
just sad to think about. But but that's the place where you could go to to Victor Video. That was one of the places that we could go to where I grew up. And on on weekdays, especially in the summer, you could go there and they served these little mini pizzas they'd make for you. So you'd go there, oh, hang nice. out, look and and eat, you know, which was pretty delicious pizza. And then they'd have you know some random video on the on the TVs in the mm-hmm. place, and you watch that. And um, it it's pretty amazing just that that part because there's these places don't exist anymore how much our children are going to miss out on this yeah the physical media thing is i know a lot of people might not have a connection to it these days i know people will be like who owns any movie now because you can just stream it but for the tactile experience it really is something special like so you know i have an eight-year-old daughter and um i behind me is a lot of blu-rays and dvds and vhs and she'll come down to the podcast studio and she'll like pull something off the shelf and be like can i watch this and i'm like no you can't watch aliens yet and uh (laughs) and then she'll be like oh come on and i'm like that's that feeling you know that that we would have as kids where we'd bump up against something then someone would be like that's too dangerous for you and then you'd be like but what is that and you don't have that with streaming and with algorithms and everything now it's just i always was creeped out by that idea and um I like the idea of programming things yourself and deciding what you want to put on, when you want to put it on. And so we have records, we have CDs, we have all kinds of different things that she can interact with and look at and put on and play. And I think that that's just super important for moments of discovery. Yeah, I want to, I want to talk more about the tangible media thing here in a minute, but you just sparked this memory in my mind. I remember when Showgirls showed up at the, <laughs> yeah. the local video store, and I remember walking by it, and like, because I, I come from a very conservative town, and I was like, who is going to rent that? And, th- and then, you, then you realize, you look behind it, because, you know, back in the day, it was, they had the, you had the, the cover, you know, the original cover, and then behind it was the actual rental case uh-huh. that you would take up to check out, and it, it, it was checked out for, it was never there. So right. it's like so obviously my very conservative town certainly loved their showgirls uh but uh, yeah, yeah well, it was just one of those things in my dad's store yeah my my parents were um i mean i guess you would say conservative and uh so in his store he didn't have x-rated films so we didn't mm-hmm. have the corner with the saloon doors that led to all the porno tapes right um so we had you know our was, was as crazy as it got in ours except Somebody, um, so one thing that happens that people might not know is when a mom and pop shop would go out of business, other mom and pop shops would buy their catalog. And so you, that's part of the the weird remix that would happen. And so we would occasionally have an influx of tapes. And one of the ones we got was Andy Warhol's Dracula, which was a X-rated film, but somebody had sharpied out the X on the back. So my parents didn't know. So we just had, we, I knew we had one forbidden tape in the store. Um, and, uh, and weirdly never was checked out because it's Andy Warhol's Dracula. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine, you know, it, people talk about uh, streaming services and just the amount of time you just sit there and scroll and there's just mm-hmm. nothing you want to watch because there's just so much content. But if you think about, about back to those days at the local video store, or, you know, eventually the blockbuster, the amount of time, unless you, unless you knew what you were going in to try to get to rent, you would spend an hour there at, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you'd smell the popcorn and it was just quite an experience like the uh, not just the tactile feeling, but just the senses of of what it was and how it was lit in there. And and you'd turn a corner from sci fi and suddenly be in like the international section and be like, oh, what is 
what is this? Like this French movie. I've never even seen a French movie before. And so you'd, you'd just be exposed to things that now scrolling through, it's gonna, you're going to kick up the same 20 titles or whoever's paying to have their stuff put at the front. It's just a, it's just a totally different thing. It takes the randomness out of it. Yeah, um, you had mentioned um, your 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 dis- rediscovery of the box art, the art that was used mm-hmm. on all these VHS types, and it's, I think that really becomes part of that tactile, like holding it in your hands. Um, movies, not so much uh, for for me, just because there aren't weren't really liner notes in movies, but like yeah. albums, you know. The, the big albums and then for me I'm you know I'm kind of a, out of the cassette and and CD generation where mm-hmm. you, you, you'd get an album and the first thing you would do is you would open it up and you'd read the lyrics and see who was on it and and, and the paper had a certain smell to it yeah and um, it was just it was just it's such a different experience now that like everything is available on your cell phone. And, um, you know, the stuff that used to have to go to like the, the import stores to find is now, you know, you can find it on YouTube. It's just, it's a, just a different world that our kids are in, but you're probably finding, cause, you know, and I see it behind you that there still are things that just aren't available on streaming that you have to buy a physical copy of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and music too. There's a lot of stuff. If you get out there, like I was very into, um, electronic music in the eighties, early 90s and there's a lot of remixes and things that aren't on streaming services and i'm not sure the legal reasons why or not and sometimes you can find them on youtube but a lot of times i have to go to ebay and buy like a maxi single because i'm like i remember this seven minute remix by orbital and i'm going to track it down um and yeah to what you're saying about movies same thing there's a lot of stuff because of rights issues or somebody i mean it's still rights but like music is a big thing that keeps things from from being popped from you know, format to format. So a lot of stuff was stuck on VHS and didn't make the jump to DVD, which means it didn't make the jump to Blu-ray. So it's up to these boutique labels like Vinegar Syndrome, etc., that come through and they'll they'll do these awesome restorations for these movies. But then it's like, who's the audience? Because no one's seen this thing for 30, 40 years. So right. um, unless you're really hunting for it, like I said, I, I am constantly doing... Um, and it's really, it really gets me when something's not available anywhere. Then I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to find this Necronomicon movie or whatever it is uh, that I've convinced myself I have to own? So, you you hit on something pretty important that I think, um, you know, I, I've I, I think me coming out of the the radio business, I was a little more aware of it. But the fact that music licensing is one of the biggest problems for um, redistribution of of content, mm-hmm. and then sometimes uh, a, a a TV show will be released and you go and you watch it and all the original music that was there has been replaced with, you know, generic filler music. Yep. And it's just not the same. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I was just watching, um, Rob Zombie's Halloween two for a a podcast I'm guesting on. And he was talking about, there's a part in a record store where it's just the background images of DC punk bands and stuff. And they had to clear all of those, um, the, the advertising, the flyers, the whatever, so that it could even just be included in the movie. Now, if one of those wasn't cleared and the movie went out or whatever, then there's going to be a legal issue and who's going to pay for it. And, right. you know, if the movie didn't make a ton of money, then the company's not going to pay for it. They're just going to be like, no, we'll just shelve it. And then suddenly there's something not in circulation because of, you know, one person's band or whatever it was. It's just like, well, it's not the band, it's the record label, but you can see how it just, things can just go away. Yeah, and just little, kind of to your point, very small, subtle things that most people mm-hmm. probably wouldn't even notice. You know, it's just some, something in the background or 
yeah. a 10-second clip of a song that passes, you know, you're passing through somewhere and there's something in the background. But, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to th- think about, you know, how some, some things are just shelved kind of to your point because of things yeah, like that. Yeah, and, and people don't, I think, really think about the music part like you talked about. And when you're watching something, and needle drops are a huge thing now as we're, like, mining nostalgia for things like Stranger Things or whatever. Um, every single one of those songs, they paid a lot of money for those things to be used in there. And yeah. the things like there was a huge thing for Kate Bush this year with uh, Running Up That Hill. And, I mean, not only was she paid for that, but it put her number one on the on the charts, like... Right. 35, 40 years after the song came out. So, I mean, it's there's a lot of power to that, but there's also, a, a you know, the paying and the, I mean, in 10 years, you know, who knows, going to have the rights to that and we'll see. So, I, I don't know that you get into uh, all of this so much on your podcast, kind of the, maybe you do when you're kind of talking about the film and, and just how it's aged and whether it's aged well or the production value. Um so what prompted you, you, you kind of said, you know, this discovery in your 40s, this fascination, you know, kind of taking back to your childhood with the box art. What really was the catalyst to start the podcast, VHS? Uh, well, I always had a creative outlet since high school. I mean, there was some patches where I didn't, but I was always happier when I was making something. And so um, I did a lot of improv and theater and some independent film stuff. And then uh, DJing also for a while. And then I just wasn't doing anything. And and, um, we were just doing the sauce business. And I was like, I kind of need a creative outlet. And my wife, Sarah, was like, "Um, you should do that, like a podcast that you were talking about doing. And I said, well, I don't really know what I would do. And then the book came... Um, it's called video cover art. And I just was like, Oh, this is the thing. But I didn't want to just have another podcast where I'm like, I like this movie. And so, um, the idea of the profession came about because we have an exterminator that comes to keep the commercial kitchen, you know, pristine on the outside. And, uh, I was like, why would you become an exterminator? And then I had this Peter Weller movie of unknown origin. And, uh, I was like, well, there's an exterminator in this movie. So I asked the guy if he'd come on and he was like, sure. And then my brain just started snowballing where I was like, we know a psychic medium. We know a person who's a witch. We know someone who is, uh, identifies as a mermaid. We know. Um, and then I just was like, it just became a thing. And sometimes it's like an idea that pops into my head. Like I was like, I really want to talk to a Santa. And so I had a movie called deadly games, which is about a killer Santa And I just started writing to Santas, um, who I think, you know, they're adults, uh, but the first probably 15 rejections I got were all from Santa, so from from the character. It wasn't like they were like, sure, these months when I'm not Santa, it was just, (laughs) I was constantly being rejected by Santa. And then I finally found someone to tell us, you know, what do you do in the time when you're not you know, when it's not December or whatever. And, and through that conversation, he told me that there's two, there's a, first of all, there's a, like a Google forum chat space for Santas around the world. And there's 20 
to 40,000 Santas on there. And there's warring worlds, warring factions of Santas. There's the magic using Santas and the non-magic practicing Santas. Oh, and wow. it's like things like that where like we wouldn't know this is happening on Earth right now. But right. because of this conversation, I now am privy to the idea that like there are Santas that see another Santa do magic and they're like, Well, that's not my Santa. <laughs> I just love that. Wow. And and so when you finally got your Santa, what was the movie that you uh, did in, in connection with, with that Santa? Right. Well, it's tricky, too, because sometimes I'll get a guest and I'm asking a complete stranger to watch a movie they haven't seen right. and then talk to me. And it's the first conversation they've ever had with me and we're recording it. Um, and so sometimes people will turn me down. I had a couple clowns turn me down for Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And so I said, well, Deadly Games is a, is a good one because it's basically Home Alone. But instead of the the two guys, the wet bandits, it's a Santa impersonator mm-hmm. and then um the other movie i said was rare exports depending on which one you wanted to talk about which is about a little boy whose father discovers basically like a krampus and uh he watched both so in that episode with santa we ended up talking about both those movies because i was like well you put in the time so let's just have the conversation and it was great he would have never have seen those films or heard about them and because of a uh, me randomly reaching out um it worked really well and then the pandemic was hitting and something he was doing was Skyping with children because they couldn't go to the mall to see him. So right. my daughter got to Skype with Santa because of that episode. And um, it was really a, a special time because the world felt pretty dark at that time. So it, It's fascinating to me, Dirk, that uh, that uh, you, you just listed off uh, a few movies in there that I had never heard of. Some of I had, but I had never heard of because, you know, and I, I, I don't consider myself a, fo- a film buff, but I feel consider myself kind of up to speed on the the big stuff and Mm -hmm. so you know my 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 brain obviously went instantly to bad santa and that's pretty much that's pretty much where my santa you know maybe the santa claus but uh for you though does does your knowledge of these these movies come from that rental store growing up or is it the fascination beyond that i mean obviously some of these movies came out probably after after your father's stores went away yeah, it's it's like a, I think of it like um like a, a a seed that then grows roots and then sprouts off in different directions. And so if there's something that attracts my mind, like I think I wonder how many Thanksgiving horror movies there are, and then I'll start digging until I have three or four or something. And then it's like, well, then I want to put that on the shelf because now I want to have a Thanksgiving section. Same thing with like rat horror movies. I'll have <clears throat> excuse me and. uh and part of that is also like different ways I can get myself to search for things. So in October, my wife and I do something called 31 and 31, where we watch a different horror movie every day for the month of October. And to make myself not just watch the same Poltergeist or whatever, I will theme the days. And so one year I did Ratter Day as Saturday. So it was mm-hmm. all rat horror movies. And so then I had to task myself with finding five different rat horror movies, <laughs> which hopefully I hadn't seen before. Right. And, um, and because of that, I found some real gems, and I also found that some people make, you know, very uneven rap movies. <laughs> so, it's uh, it's different for everything. And I mean, Christmas, uh, I have, I think about eight to ten different Christmas movies that are that are different horror ones, excluding just like Silent Night, Deadly Night, because there's like five of those. But right, yeah, it just comes down to like what I can come across and what makes me go. Is there more of this? You know, like Gremlin spinoffs. That was a really fun one when I was just like, how many are there out there that I can find? 
um, shark movies, excluding like Sharknado and stuff like that. Just, and I get really into like foreign versions of things. So I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but I love when somebody sees something like Star Wars in the seventies and goes, we can do that. And then you watch it and you're like, this is, this is not Star Wars. This is wild what you made. So are you are you are you buying the physical copies because you know pe- people can't see you and but if they follow you on Instagram you know you post photos from your your yeah, podcast studio you've got mm-hmm. a, a vast library there behind you so are you buying physical copies of most of these or are you streaming some of them mm-hmm. sometimes No I'm I mean I'll watch something on YouTube uh, if I can't find it but chances are I'm gonna try to track it down I love the cover art and the cases I love that. Back in the day, people would pitch movies just off of a poster. They would just have a poster made and then go to like a place where there's distributors and everything and be like, this is the movie. And then people would be like, sure, we'll pay money for that. And then you watch the movie and you're like, this is nothing like that poster. I don't right. know how, <laughs> you know, Deathstalker is a great one for that if you look up that artwork. Um, but yeah, I just love, I love to have the actual cases. So also, there's, like I said, there's boutique labels that are restoring these things, so Sometimes if I'll track something down and I can't find it anywhere, I'll reach out to these people and be like, hey, do you know why this isn't in circulation? And they'll tell me it's either a righteous issues or a lot of times they'll say, well, we've been working on that for like five to seven years trying to get this thing like untied from all whatever's like keeping it from being out there, which is always great news for me because then it means I can actually own a copy. But yeah, to answer your question, whenever possible, it's I'm tracking it down and it's going on the shelf. And you're doing that thing that I think so few people do anymore where you're – it sounds like you're purchasing a, a movie, a film before you've even seen it in some cases. Yeah. Oh, for sure because it can't be seen anywhere. Right. Um, and, you know, like um, there's a Turkish uh, Jaws kind of ripoff called Coal, C-O-L, and it does not exist anywhere. I can't find it. I could find a couple still images. And so it was a, a – probably a year of me searching for this thing but i finally found it and i have a copy of it and i watched it <laughs> and then it goes on the shelf it's like you know i have to i have to see it through right yeah no i i, I th- there were there were times where um every now and then back but you know before streaming became a thing because i was one of those skeptics about about streaming about whether it was really going to take off and 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 actually work just because i think so many of us would try to watch videos on on, on the internet and the buffering was right. was bad and so i just thought nah, this will always so uh you know I, I there may be may have been two or three videos in my collection however that i had actually purchased just flat out purchase rather than rent because I, fe- I i know i'm gonna like this um but it sounds like a good good majority of your stuff is uh, obviously if you're if you're gonna watch it you've got to purchase the the dvd or the blu-ray in order to watch it so the collection keeps growing there for you dirk yeah well a great example would be there's a guy godfrey ho um out of hong kong and he did a hundred and fifty movies or something like that 40 some odd of them are in 1987 so he would do these ninja movies that's what he got super into but the way he would do it is he would take and a pre-existing film, which maybe wasn't released in Hong Kong, and then he would cut footage into it of ninja stuff that he shot. Um, and it is very obvious what he shot and what he didn't. And then he would even take music from like Joy Division or Devo or whatever that he did not have the rights to. And so these movies are these wild quilts of like random things that don't really make sense together. 
And I absolutely love these things. And of course, for legal reasons, they are not distributed or anything. Right. You can find a lot of them on YouTube. If someone's curious to see an example, there's one called Clash of the Ninjas that I absolutely love. There's one called Crocodile Fury, which is really great. And um, and it wasn't always Hong Kong films. He would take stuff from from everywhere and then just stitch in random ninja footage. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. But the covers of these things are are unbelievable. Um, let me just show you one right now, which so you can see. Oh this wow! I'll yeah. put it on YouTube and everything. Uh, on the cover of the Clash of the Ninjas, they put Stallone as Cobra, right. and he's also not in the movie. Uh, yeah. So it's it's just that kind of stuff where they were doing whatever to try to move a film, and right. I just I can't get enough of it. Yeah, I could look at it forever. All right, Chris, let's just pause a moment here, talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. You know, I just had the good fortune to be on the Snake River with Chef Jonathan Gill from Ringside, and uh, boy, that was fantastic, and he served up a little bit of Wagyu and some culottes and some incredible corn that's available on their menu as a side dish. So that was a lot of fun. You can go to, uh, I think, Portland Food Adventures. Uh, Instagram and check out a couple of the images from there. But I will say the couple of nights before we went, my friend and I went to ringside and um, I wanted him to enjoy the best steak he's ever had. Um, And we asked Chef Jonathan to suggest which one of the three options for Wagyu steak we should have. And there's a A4 olive-fed um, Wagyu available on their menu. It's a, it's a premium price, of course, but it's worth it because it may just be the best steak you've ever had. And and as I said, Jonathan served some Wagyu on the river, and we had quite a few people who were regular customers of Ringside who said that was, that was the best steak they've ever had. So that's my suggestion. Um, treat yourself to one of the three options on the menu you for Wagyu at at Ringside. Yeah, definitely one of the reasons why Ringside Steakhouse is Portland's steakhouse for over 78 years. And we should mention, you know, they've gone through some different changes over the past couple of years uh, because of the pandemic, but now open seven days a week back to the way it was. And you can get the uh, full list of uh, hours and schedule your next reservation on their website, ringsidesteakhouse.com. Lots of options at ringside. And of course, they've gone out of their way to make sure everything is healthy and uh, air is circulating. And uh, ringside's a great choice. Very nice. So as I mentioned, reservations at ringsidesteakhouse.com or just make it through the open table app. leads me to this question do you have a a favorite genre of a film or is it is it is that too you know for somebody who loves movies the way you do that's probably too you know too hard to do no i think well i think what spoke to me the most as a kid it's the special effects that we got in the 70s and 80s it's the the person in a rubber suit it's the creature features it's the the imagination that goes into all the gore gags and everything i that stuff was what I can't probably ever get away from and what I always want to see, especially in films where people had zero money, just the creativity yeah. that people had to, had to have and the ingenuity. Um, I love that. I, I, I also love the 
sort of camaraderie where, you know, a special effects artist like John Carl Buechler, who designed like the stuff for ghoulies and everything, people's first jobs would be working with him and he would impart wisdom to them, working on a level that's not like big Hollywood, you know? It's like, well, this is how you make a mold. This is how you make the creature. This is how you make it articulate. And then that person takes that and that person could end up making the biggest Marvel film or whatever. I mean, obviously not now because it's all CG, but um, there's just no limitations to that. And I just love teachers. I love, you know, that ability of passing on information. And um, so I think the creature features are always going to be something special for me in, in like the horror genre. But I also really loved in the 90s when we started getting the big boom of indie cinema. Um, that was another one. Um, so a through line between those two is like people just doing stuff, you know, there's no gatekeeping. It's just like, if you want to do it, work hard, get the thing done and out there. And, uh, and I think that that shows, you know, in our business and, and everything, there's just, uh, there's a beauty to that where there's no gatekeeping and it's just like, Hey, anyone can do this. You, uh, you, you may have done this, and, and, and you know, you said you're not a big, huge Star Wars fan. But have you seen that Disney Plus um, documentary that's out about the the people at uh, uh, Light and what is it, Lights and Ma- what is it called? The 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 F- George Industry Lucas created Light Industry Light and Magic. Yeah, there's a really great documentary where they get into it, and it's kind of this ragtag group of people that were kind of brought in to figure things out, and a lot of them came, kind of came from this background of having watched the creature features growing up, the, the yeah, animation, yeah. the claymation stuff, and then taking that and applying it to the Star Wars universe, because if you watch those those first films, you know, most yeah. of the, almost all of the creatures, they were either puppets or they were claymation, um, and it's just kind of fascinating that just the film work and all of that, and you know, this is obviously done with on a film that just made gazillions of dollars, but you're talking about people who were doing it on on uh, smaller budgeted films, but kind of had similar mm-hmm. results in, in terms oh, of what they were pulling off. Yeah, very much so. And like people that would work on Star Wars at the time would also work on, you know, very low budget things as well. Like it's, you just go where the work is right. and you're, you're, you're putting the same amount into it. And I love that these smaller films being treated the same way. The actors are seriously making a movie. They're not like they're being like, well, this is kind of goofy or whatever. Um, there's, you can see you on YouTube, there's a movie, well, there's a movie called get the gate and then there's the gate Two. And if you watch, um, on YouTube, there's a making of for the gate Two, and they have these little tiny goblin guys that are really awesome. Um, but they're actually people in suits. It's not stop motion animation, even though it kind of looks like it. Mm-hmm. And the way they did it was forced perspective. So putting something very big towards the camera and then the person is the back looking smaller. And it's so cool to, f- to realize that somebody figured out if we put the camera here and put this thing here and then have these people in the back here and it's not a new idea these are tricks that people were using since the beginning of of film but right. it's just it's just so cool to see it translated into this like quirky horror movie sequel and it still looks completely amazing no computer animation involved at all it's just in camera tricks i love it um, we, we should chat or we should make sure everybody knows. So, uh, VHS has, uh, you, are in your 10th season. Are you yep. making your way through the 10th season? You, you did something very smart, Dirk, that, uh, Chris and I didn't figure out right away just cause when, you know, right at the fork came together, we're just like, we're going to put out a fresh episode every single week. And then a little wise, a little ways into it. We're like, Oh, we have to put out a fresh episode every <laughs> single week. 
Yeah. Uh, what we're, we're going to happen, and you know, you kind of make you make some adjustments along along the way. So you, uh, you're in your tenth season. How many episodes uh, do you do per per season? So I do eight official episodes, and by official, I mean it's the VHS style. So that format where the guest has the profession portrayed in the film, um, because of like you're saying, work scheduling. It's also hard to convince strangers to do this. Plus, I have to find the films. Mm-hmm. Um, so in between those episodes, I have two alternate formats. I have one that's called New Releases and Late Returns, where we shout out all the things we're enjoying from music, television, movies. It's just a way to get the conversation to a wider aspect of entertainment. And then we talk a little bit about a forgotten gem, like a Godfrey Hill movie or whatever. And then the other one is called Screen Teens. That's a brand new format where I contact strangers and say tell me one movie from each year that you were a teenager that helped formate format your taste in movies um the stipulation is it has to be in a theater so people can't just pick the coolest movie that came out that year and uh and they get one pick from i call it slumber party pick so so one movie that they saw at someone's house or whatever that just blew them away so um so those kind of give me a little breathing room so at the end each season is about 16 episodes okay. now and, and and like i said you've done 10 seasons my mind automatically translates 10 seasons 10 years that you haven't been doing this for for 10 for 10 years how many seasons are you kind of putting out on on average or it, it might you know, you know the pandemic did its thing and might have slowed things down or sped things up i don't know yeah been doing it about three years now okay yeah that's 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 still very consistent, and again, uh, kudos to you for thinking of doing it in the the seasons format, so that you kind of you can have some pauses and and not feel like you're you're not doing something. Yeah, uh, well, when I I started out, I very much wanted it to feel like a show, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to have an editor, and you know, it's a lot of work. It's like you know, probably four hours in the editing bay per episode because we're dropping in samples from the movie and whatnot. So. I I also had a sensitivity towards their schedule. I was like, sure. okay, we need to give you breaks because this is this is a lot. Yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a great podcast. I've I've been uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, catching up on on a lot of. I was a latecomer to it, Dirk, so I apologize for that. But um, I think definitely something people should be checking out. Um, I did promise to you that we would talk about this, and and I think it's probably uh, worth having you and Sarah coming back and doing a full podcast on, on oh, yeah, Marshall's Hot Sauce, kind of see what you've been up to. But so, in addition to to doing your regular podcast over the past three years and uh, parenting, uh, you said your daughter's eight years old. Correct. Yeah. In fact, my my favorite thing, Dirk, from our our very quick uh, email conversation setting up our our conversation today was you saying, "Well, we can't do it in the afternoon because my daughter gets home from school and she's I can't remember your exact phrase, but it was a wild beast. She's a wild beast. That's exactly what. Yeah. Um, Which I can completely relate to. Uh, You, uh, the audience, can't see this, but I'm actually in my 17 year old daughter's bedroom right now. That's why it's not not as cool looking as yours, but it's cool to a 17 year old. And, uh, you know, I, I can, I can go back to that time where if you're working out of the house, every parent is counting down. They're like, okay, what time do the kids get home? Cause at, at once that bus drops them off or whatever, it's a different work environment inside the house. So, um, I'm, I'm not telling you anything new, but I just yeah. thought, you know, um, on, well, on, to- on top of the fact that you're, you know, running a company as, as well. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. 
yeah, we work where, I mean, the ground floor of our home is a commercial kitchen slash podcast studio. And then where I do shipping and receiving, and then there's a spiral staircase that leads to our home. So when my daughter is here, she's directly above me where the TV is. And she does not sit still, especially after a long day of school sitting still. So you would just hear thump, 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 right. thump the whole time we were having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I found uh, I you know I I actually I come into my daughter's room because it's the kind of the furthest away from my wife wife's office. It's mm-hmm. you know it, we've got two dogs now, and if they're running around, it kind of keeps things quiet. Um, but I may I've made the mistake a few times where like I'll run the little robot vacuum and uh, oh. the hardwood floors I just installed upstairs, and so I'm like, oh, I need to I need to turn that off. My my quiet room is not so quiet. There's there's a lot of challenges from running a, a business out of your house. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been doing Marshall's hot sauce for a lot longer than you've been doing the podcast. Um, twelve years, tw- twelve years, and um, I, you know, I, I I said I was going to look this up, and I didn't do it. Um, let me do this. I'll I'll type it in real quick. Here we go. You were oh, all the way back in, yeah, the, the first year, November of 2014, episode 39. There it is. <laughs> yeah. So I, I knew it was early on. I mean, that, that was the, the, the first year we were in business. At the time, I was just the, uh, the uh, broadcast engineer, the guy that was making sure everybody sounded good and mm-hmm. Chris and Heather were running things. So That's right. Yeah. So 2014 would have been four years in to Marshall's Hot Sauce, mm-hmm. correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, 2011. Okay, yeah, three or four years in. Um, kind of a broad question here. How much has changed, Dirk, between 2014 and here Here we are towards the end of 2022? That's a great question, and I do get this a lot because we do a couple different things in addition to just making the sauces. Is through Airbnb experiences, Sarah teaches canning classes where people can learn to make pickles, hot sauces, jams, pressure canning, all of that happens in our commercial kitchen. And then I do expanded tasting, so you can try anything from depending on what we have in rotation. I just did a tasting for six people that was 15 of our sauces, plus two of our spicy wine collaborations, some bonus snacks. People just hang out for an hour. And uh, so part of me showing people that is that each year we just got a bigger pot, basically. And um, we just got to be more efficient in what we did. So our team still consists of Sarah making the sauce. She's the person that bottles and makes every bottle. And then we have somebody who helps with the washing and prepping of produce. Um, We have somebody that helps with deliveries. And then I do all the labeling, shipping, receiving, um, all of that aspect. And we're also the people that work all the events. Um, but it's the stuff that we really love to do. So a lot of it doesn't feel like work, um, except for maybe in the holidays when we're doing like 3,000 bottles a day, then it's a little a little uh, work-like. But um, yeah, each each year we just got a bigger pot, figured out a faster way to do something or a more efficient way to do something. We still locally source from all uh, local farmers. Right now we're getting thousands of pounds of produce. Um, it's uh, It's really fun. It still has a natural sort of ebb and flow because of how agriculture goes. So when tomatoes are in season, that's when we're processing all of our tomatoes for the year. Peppers, the same thing. Our our warehouse area is full of chest freezers where washed and prepped peppers go in for when we make each batch. Um, we're still doing chef collaborations. Uh, the first weekend of every month, Sarah does like a new experiment or pulls out one of our classic limited edition sauces. So there's something constantly changing and moving that makes it still really exciting 
Um, and, and you're doing like when you talk about events, you're, you're like, uh, if I recall from from the conversation from got to do the math here, eight years ago, eight years ago, yeah. man, um, uh, farmers market's still a pretty big part of what you guys do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so our whole thing was always connecting people back to the farmers when people were visiting from out of town, we could say, oh, you like the carrots and the habanero carrot curry? Well, that's the farmer that grew the carrots. And people aren't used to having that connection to food. And so it was always important to us to sort of um, pass that focus on. So being at the farmer's market is our our number one thing. So Sarah's there every Saturday. um, And that's the PSU farmer's market, um, downtown Portland. Yeah. And I, and I would assume that um, just, you know, b- because of demand, I'm obviously, as you pointed out during the holidays, there might be increased demand, but um, uh, you're, you're, Sarah's in that kitchen pretty much weekly cooking a batch of something or, or is that cyclical? You kind of talked about it, just kind of depending on what's going on with the. Yeah. The- so, so our regular days, she's making sauce Monday, Tuesday, and then uh, Wednesday or Thursday is an optional pickup and then Friday, and then she's in the market. Saturday at the farmer's market. And then Sunday, we usually do classes and tastings. Sometimes I do a tasting on Saturday. And that's basically like our weekly schedule. The the uh, classes you talked about, it, it really stood out to me, um, was you mentioned the, uh, the pressure cooking. Because I think for a lot of people, this idea of using a pressure cooker in their house and having never been around it, that could be a pretty intimidating, uh, intimidating thing for some people. Um, so a good, <laughs> yeah. a good service, I think. Yeah, whether it's pressure canning or even just regular water bath canning, people just are nervous about it. It's the heat, it's the time, it's that there's glass involved. And so having someone really help you navigate and troubleshoot and remove the stress from that situation is really freeing because then it's, you know, anyone can have a little garden space and can, you know, grow some cucumbers to make pickles or some tomatoes. And it's really like once you take away that nervousness, it's so fun for it to be like December or January and we're all inside and it's dark and there's nothing fresh. And then you see that jar of something that you put up from the summer and you're like, Hey, let's, let's have a little bit of something that we did this summer, like in the middle of our winter or whatever, you know, it's, it's such a nice thing to do. It it reminds me, um, I grew up, you know, my, my dad always tried to have a garden space and we had fruit trees. And so come, you know, this, this time of year, my mom was always busy, uh, canning, um, so mm-hmm. many things. So we had this this gigantic yellow. I just remember it being yellow with like black speckles on it. Pressure pressure cooker that my mom yeah. would get out, and she'd get all the mason jars out and ready to go to you know, reuse all those. And it was yeah, either she was canning the fruit or she would make um, salsa or chili sauce. Um, that kind of kind of to your point, this the, the you know just the the canning w- would allow stuff to stay longer and so yep. in the middle of winter you're having something that, that tastes and feels fresh so i think probably to that point like the pressure cooker uh i've never been worried working around one but i i've noticed some people are just like do you know what you're doing right <laughs> so yeah well and the gauges and stuff have changed a little bit over time so there's it's less scary but sure. um but it's you know also fun because in i sarah did a class one time and the the gauge thing just was faulty and so right. she had you know she got to show them right on the spot like oh this is how you slowly let the pressure out of this thing so that you can safely move on with the next step and you know that's part of the classes that that sort of randomness it hasn't happened since then but at the time it was like what a cool teachable moment that you couldn't have planned you right know? yeah no and, and it's the one the, the otherwise you're just telling them about it you know yeah possibly telling them about it rather than actually you know demonstrating it 
Well, um, another new thing that she started was uh, there's a new platform called Kitsch. And I don't know if you've seen us talk about that, but it's uh, basically like for video games, there's a thing called Twitch. And yeah. you, know, you can watch people play video games and you can interact with them live. So there's a new platform called Kitsch that's come out, K-I-T-T-C-H. It's free to join. And there's all these different chefs on there and they go on and you can interact with them or not. You can submit questions. You can join the chef's table. So you can actually be in the video um, asking questions or giving feedback or whatever while the chef cooks. It's super cool. And Sarah started doing that. So um, if anyone's interested in finding her, you can search her name, Sarah Marshall. I'm sure if you do Marshall's Hot Sauce, it comes up as well. But it's been really exciting to see this platform start and um, to be a part of that. I, I think I, I love stuff like that. It, it's we live in such a world kind, kind of going back to this point of like our kids are growing up in an environment where if they have a question about anything, they don't go to mom and dad anymore. They go to YouTube because <laughs> right, right. there's a video about it or, yeah. you know, or, or, or a channel or, or something like Kitsch, because I can't tell you how many, you know, especially during the pandemic where, you know, we're all trying to, you know, we're, you know, you're confined to the house. You're trying to change up your routines a little bit and so for us a lot of it became getting a little more experimental with our dinner prep and if you want to make something there's certainly going to be a video or if not a hundred videos on how to kind of walk you through and and cook in a different way so it sounds like kitsch is very much in, in line with that yeah and it, the fun thing about it is like she'll go on the news she'll do you know cooking demos and whatnot but most of the time you're talking at people and so Anytime you can interact, that's really the best thing. We were both social workers before doing hot sauce. And so those, you know, being at the market and talking to people, it's uh, doing when she does the kitchen, people pop on and ask questions, doing the classes. It's that connectivity and that sense of like community that I think we always wanted in social work. And, you know, now find it through sauce and, and for me, like in podcasting as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, uh, certainly, certainly educational. I think, uh, you know, I, my, my advice to anybody building a brand or building a, a company is to look through it through the lens of education, because I, mm-hmm. I don't think you, you can create better brand loyalty than by just being informative to some people, you know, and they, they may not even decide to go with your product right away, but you've at least educated them on, on something. I think it makes such, such a big difference. Yeah, well, in in Portland, we have... I mean, I don't know now after the pandemic, but we were sitting at around 20 to 30 different sauce families. And, you know, we sometimes see each other at events and stuff. And and people outside of Portland maybe would think like, oh, they're all, you know, adversarial or whatnot. But we're actually not. Everyone's doing something different. And it's always interesting to see what people are doing. Um, So what we did was we invited pre-pandemic everyone to come over. So uh, the only stipulation was you had to make a dish with someone else's sauce. And so we had like 20 something sauce families and all the kids are playing together and everyone's trying each other's stuff and just chatting away. And, and after that, we realized like we should have like a, a chat thing. So Sarah had set something up. I think it's through Google now, but um, it just connected all the sauce makers so that if someone has a, a plethora of lids or needs bottles or whatever, people can reach out to each other. And it's a com- completely supportive network and we've been able to also plug in farmers so if a farmer contacts us and is like hey i have 500 pounds of cherry bomb peppers and we're like we can't really do anything with those right now but we can put it out on the list and then people are like yes i want 25 pounds or whatever and so these farms can like reduce their waste and you know still because we got great agriculture here in oregon grow lots of peppers and then they actually find homes within our community so it's 
it's just uh, something that happens behind the scenes that I love to tell people about because it's like we're all working together, you know. Yeah, I think it's it, it's something that uh, Nate over at uh, Pips is always talking about, which is the community or comp- community, mm-hmm. not competition. Um, that I think is you know really embodies to to a large degree. Well, you, you'll every now and then hear times where it's not so much that way, but for the most part, my experience with with Portland and the food creators and and pretty much most local independent companies is is very much that is you know we're all kind of in this together and let's raise everybody up. Yeah, I mean, you'll encounter every once in a while people that are the opposite of that, but by and large, it doesn't last long, yeah. you know? So it's what the longevity really comes from is is from people like lifting each other up and helping each other out. And we do that all the time. Sarah's made time to help people even navigate like paperwork so that like their shelf stable sauces can be in the grocery stores because of language barriers or whatever standing in their way. It's like, sometimes you just need someone to decode something for you enough or break it down. I know I do to a way that I can understand it. And then it's like, okay, cool. You've helped me remove this barrier. So now I can go forward and do what I want to do. And, you know, I see a lot of that. Uh, I've, uh, kept you, uh, for almost, well, we're close to an hour here, Dirk, so I'm going to let you go, but I do want to wrap up with this. And we talked a little bit about the pandemic. So have you, has there been any new food discoveries for, for you and Sarah in the, in the Portland area? Cause we saw a lot of, a lot of our favorite places go away, go into hiatus. Yeah. Um, some new things and concepts emerge. Um, is there anything that's uh, on your radar that, uh, you want, would want to share with the, with the audience? Gosh, that is a great question. I should have given you a heads up about this, so I apologize for putting you on the spot. Well, no, it's great. I One of the things about being at the farmer's market is that you are in contact with and have been over the years, we have anyway, uh, chefs in the city because they go there to find the beautiful produce to put in their wonderful dishes. Um, last night, we just watched the Chef, chef Table episode with Sarah Minnick from Lovely's 5050. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a beautiful episode. It's fantastic. But we love her. Um so a lot of times we think of our restaurants as the people behind the scenes. You know, my, my daughter's first friend was Ethan, who's Jose Chesa um, and Christina's son, who mm-hmm. had a Taula and everything, 180. And, you know, the pandemic happened, terrible things, and they're not even in Portland anymore. And so we miss our buddies. So my point is, like, it's it's hard for me to find new places because I want to go see my friends. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. if we have an opportunity, we're going back to Lemoule, we're going back to Scotch Lodge, we're going to, you know, these places that like, we love to see the family of people that are working there. It warms our hearts to see them like from the front of the house back to the kitchen. And so discovering like new things, I'm like, gosh, I don't know. The last thing that we went to that was new um, was Gabiano's. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is you know over there by uh, Dame and Ripe Cooperativa, but even then it's like we run into you know Patrick McKee who's doing Dame, and you know if we're not going there when we're going to Ripe Cooperativa to see Naomi, then we feel bad. So it's like you know right. it's like which place can we go to and can we say hi to our other buddies? So it's 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 really hard for us. But the thing I love about the Portland food scene is that I think about the people more than I do the the buzzworthy Instagram appetizer right you know like and and the cool thing about the food scene here is you can go to these restaurants and you actually see the person like it's like you know patrick is there cooking and he comes Mm -hmm. out and he talks to someone and it's exciting to to see that and when my parents lived here um that that was their favorite thing you know patrick mckee made a dish for us when we were there last that he had made when my parents went out for their 
anniversary. It wasn't even on the menu. He just made this and brought it out to our family. And, you know, my dad's emotionally moved. My mom's moved by it. It's just like this this kindness and camaraderie. And I'll stop because I could gush about the chefs in Portland forever. But um, it's just, uh, I just, I, I love it. I love our food scene. Yeah. And, and I, and, you know, I, I think that's really kind of been what's been the catalyst for, for our podcast because, you know, something that Chris, Chris Angelis realized very early on is that as Portland was really starting to make a name for itself on the national scene, you can walk into these places and talk to these chefs that are the kind of the buzz of the nation at the time and, and get to know them. And so, you know, that was kind of our, our goal with this podcast was to, you know, tell the backstory of these people, what, what they're into, where, where are they eating? Who are they supporting? Um, and, uh, um, for, for that very reason. And then for, you know, our, our audience to be able to go into those places and, and have very similar experiences, whether it's literally sitting at the chef's table at the chef's counter, or if it's, you know, um, just seeing them in the back cooking up the, the, the meal they just ordered. So, um, no, very insightful, Dirk. I, I, I appreciate that. So we should remind everybody your podcast, you're in the uh, middle of season 10 VHS. The website, I think if correct me if I'm wrong is VH dash us.com. Correct. Yep. Um, and they can follow you on, uh, Instagram and Twitter as well. Under What's the handles there? Are they the so same? that is VHUS underscore podcast for both of those Instagram and Twitter. Perfect. And then of course, Marshall's hot sauce. Um, uh, I'm assuming they can get on the website and, um, learn more about some of those classes and special events that you were talking about. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, you know, um, spicy Marshall is my wife, the owner of Marshall's hot sauce. She's on Twitter and Instagram under those handles. You can go to Airbnb Experiences and find the classes there as well. So a lot of times it's people visiting Portland that find us, but we're also here for all the Portland people. So find us there. You can find us at the Farmer's Market, the Portland Farmer's Market on Saturdays until 2 p.m. Find all the good limited edition goodies there because you'll see only four or five sauces from us in stores. You really have to come to us to get up to 20 others yeah and and i think i knew that but then when you mentioned that dirk i was just like 20 sauces i think i've only seen four or five in in, on the groceries and and that's the reason why yeah we have we can't have an ever-expanding shelf at the grocery stores so it's like unless you go to provadore you're only going to see the core four maybe the ghost chili apple if you go to new seasons market but we have so many things that are constantly moving and changing we just started a new line of spice rubs um because we have a freeze dryer now so we can do everything for these spice rubs and really creative stuff like our barbecue rub that she does she takes dates and soaks them in uncle nearest whiskey and then freeze dries it and powders it so you have this whiskey infused date sort of back note sweetness to it's really crazy magic stuff that she's doing but it's very fun and it's a constant exploration wow very cool we'll put all the the links everything we talked about in the uh, show notes as well so dirk i really appreciate you coming on today yeah, thank you so much. I can't wait to come back. And the, yeah, and the promise is, is there. We need to have both you and, and Sarah back to talk specifically and just about Marshall's Hot Sauce. Yeah, yeah. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Mm-hmm.